Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join us this summer in New York City or virtually from your home studio in the school's legendary marathons and learn from dedicated artists and to expand as makers. Rigorous and immersive, marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time daily and present a wide range of art-making strategies combined with comprehensive critiques and inspirational discussions. Paradigm-shifting discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies in understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon. Generous, partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company that makes the best artist materials for making that you can get. Over the last 25 years or so, I've been using Golden acrylics, mediums, and materials, and I stand by the quality in their products. They make acrylics that stay wet longer, they dry flat, mediums to make you paint super thick and beautifully fluid. They also make Williamsburg oil paints and core watercolors as well. You can find Golden in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the fine coffee makers at Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has amazing coffee beans that you can order straight to your door. On their website, you can choose from different roasts from different origins, and you can even get a coffee subscription where you can get different beans delivered to your door each week or month. I'm on this subscription plan and it's amazing. As a coffee fanatic, getting new roasts all the time delivered fresh to the door is amazing. If you get to Seattle, you can even see a 10 foot by 40 foot mural of mine in their 6th and Bell Street shop. Check out Fulcrum Coffee Roasters at fulcrumcoffee.com. Visual artist, filmmaker, social researcher, Carol Montalegre studied anthropology at the University of Los Andes with an emphasis on art. In her degree practice, she inserted tools from Augusto Bull's Theater of the Oppressed in two rural schools of the Colombian Caribbean, where she worked with children ranging in age from 6 to 15 years old for a period of a year. She received a master's degree in visual arts from the National Autonomous University of Mexico. While there, she wrote her thesis, The Permanency of the Ephemeral, an investigation into the experience of time-space from a philosophical and aesthetic approach embodied in a human body as a support for the experience in performance art. Recently, her research and practice intersect cinema and performance art with human rights advocacy. She works in the creation of experiences that allow the spectator and the performer to immerse themselves in other possible realities for the sake of decolonization of the body, mind, and soul. She is currently working on the project Howls in the Mountains with a woman's union in Colombia on alternative healing practices for post-war trauma, creating video installations in Super 8 film and mixed media. Carol and I spoke about moving from country to country, being deported, 
giving birth in Germany, connecting with music, finding performance as a way of making, and much more. Here's our conversation. All good. Good to go. You look somewhere nice and sunny. I am in the Hudson Valley. Oh, in really? New York. Yeah, because I mean, I live in Brooklyn, but <clears throat> I when I came to Bar, I stay in this kind of communal house, uh, hotel, blah blah blah, and it's this super old, super huge house um, That's, by the river. I- it looks like it has a cool vibe. It's a great vibe, actually. It's really, I'm really grateful to be able to stay here when I come because, I mean, it's a huge house. It's like, I don't know, it has like, I don't know, 12 rooms or something. Yeah. And oh, just like in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, when my child comes here, he's so happy. And, oh, and yeah. it's, right in front of the Hudson River. And then you have a huge garden. <clears throat> and then everybody is kind of, you know, kind of artist, blah, 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 same vibe. Right. And, and it it's kind of a kind of a communa. It's very interesting because, you know, all the people around here is very wealthy mm-hmm. and doesn't have this vibe. Yeah. So this house is kind of something else. Yeah, it's really cool. That's great. So when did you start at Bard? I started in uh, fall 2021. Yeah. So you've been there a couple of years. And then, but you've been, how long were you in Brooklyn? Well, the same. The thing is that um, I was, we were, we moved to the States with my partner, my child. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I was deported back in 2017 on Fairly in an airport crazy episode. And and we were fighting for my visa for a long time because we were married and all these things. And then I got accepted into this program and synchronicity happened that I got accepted. I got the full scholarship and then they gave me the visa. But I have now the green card because, you know. I was fighting for another status, not a student. Right. So it was just like kind of a a good coincidence. Yeah. Well, um, so the Brooklyn thing was timed at the same time, basically. Yeah. We moved to Brooklyn and I was just commuting every week here. Whoa. That's a commute. Well, I guess. It's not yeah. That bad. You take well, the train? No, because the train is super expensive. I mean, yeah. if you do it every week and also because you, <clears throat> unfortunately, here the trains are not very well connected with the area. So you right. have to pay a taxi of $25 every time yeah. if you get in the train and you don't have a car. And so then it's cheaper, let's say, to come in the car. But right. it's, a, it's a lot of driving. And if you do it in the rush hour, then you suffer because it's a lot of time. What's and like I the live, average average time, front to back? Uh, I, I, I start discovering good timing. So, for example, right. I start coming Mondays six a.m. Mm-hmm. and then it was two hours and a half, which is what it should be. Yeah, but if I leave at eight, it's three hours and a half. It's amazing, right? Um, a little traffic just totally changes. 
Exactly. And for example, if you want at the first semester, I have a very unfortunate obligate, like super mandatory course on Friday afternoons. And it took me four hours to go back oh, wow. at least. And also because I live in Bushwick. So it's not like if I would live in the, in Harlem or yeah. in the Bronx will be much better. New Jersey <laughs> city. Oh no, I guess actually Westchester would be best. Ah, uh, yeah. Westchester yeah. is like two hours. Yeah. That, the, the most. So yeah, it's like, it's also because I live really deep in Brooklyn and together from here is the traffic. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better. Uh, I teach at Penn State, so my drive is four hours. Oh my! And that's that's without traffic. So if I leave at the wrong time, it could be five hours. Yeah, almost like going to Cornell. Sure. So I, although I love driving, I love the quiet time and like listening to interviews or books and music. I know there's something nice about driving. Yeah, no, I mean, it has his magic. It's just that I'm always late. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's my problem. I mean, it's right, not. Right. <laughs> yeah, but so you have you have one kid? I have one kid, yeah. How old is your kid? Five. Five. Well, that will also cause you to be late occasionally. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's like sometimes you don't sleep enough and yeah. then everything just kind of collapse <laughs> yeah you can throw your whole world off <laughs> <laughs> exactly but we made it i mean i'm actually happy that um <clears throat> even though this for example i moved to the states uh, back then and i never drive here before mm -hmm. i mean i i never need to drive i was every time i was here before i was in new york and i didn't have a car and and I mean, of course I drive in other places, but just, I basically got here because they gave me the visa in September. So I was already three weeks late into the masters. So basically I arrive at, and the next week I start to drive upstate on my own. Wow. Like that was a huge challenge because actually most of my cohort are foreigners. And so sometimes I was driving people from my classmates and I was like, okay, Help me with the map. And we were all completely aliens <laughs> to the map of how to drive in New York City. Right. So we got lost in the Bronx. We got lost here. We got lost there. So in the first first commutings was a disaster sometimes. Like we just got lost. I mean, if you lose the exit and then it's like, oh no. And then the map is reading that you are going in the highway, but you're not. Right. And then it was a disaster. Yeah. And I then mean, you... I yeah. Oh, I was just going to say you're, you're learning like the hard way. This isn't like the easy, like driving in New York city is not relaxing or the, the most gentle way to start that process. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm glad I, I learned in a city that is kind of tough and you have to be very tough to drive there. Yeah. Because I I was like, if I would learn in a city that is like super gentle, I would be completely crying in the car. Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. just like, I cannot do it. But then yeah. I was like, oh, here you have to be as punk as in Bogota. Okay, then I am from Bogota, so I'm going right. to fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so you grew up there. How, like, um, 
What was life like as a kid there? Oof, well, I grew up in the 80s. <clears throat> there was a lot of, like, it was a chaos. I mean, I of course, I was, um, you know, I was a middle-class family, so I have not witnessed, like, a lot of bad things that maybe other people did, yeah. you know? I mean, I was kind of a lucky child somehow. But for example, what? I have a very vivid memory of one day that we were with my mom in the street and my sister, and there was a bomb <laughs> because this was in the narco narco thing that they were putting bombs in the malls and bombs in the things to just kill whatever, whoever they want to kill. Yeah. And that was like tough because, you know, it was like you hear this bang and then all the glasses just crashed around you and it's like what the fuck is going on it's like oh yeah no there was a bomb and that was very common but then you're like okay that you know in your childhood that you normalize those things because that happens and you see that i have to right you just internalize it it's like oh yeah exactly exactly and then so but then when i was a teenager i was very kind of rebel and I was going to every single place that was forbidden to me to go. And so I get to know the city in its more like darkest places, right? which then I kind of enjoy it because, you know, I was looking for something that I wasn't really sure what was it. Yeah. And I was very lucky, very, very lucky. I was like incredibly lucky that nothing really bad happened to me. Mm, but when now that I grow up, I was like, I will never ever do that. I mean, why I was so crazy then. Right. You know? Yeah, when you have kids, you're like, oh my god, I can't believe. Yeah, no, and then I understand why my mom was so nervous all the time. Yeah, because yeah. I was so crazy. What did your parents do? Um. Well, my father uh, used to. Ha- I mean, they have a company of with my uncle and aunt that they actually just passed away um they have a company that do like big machinery for construction of roads mm-hmm. so actually they used to create to do the i don't know the name in english but all these machines that prepare the asphalt for the construction of roads yeah. and, i mean they used to build that from scratch from scratch how did they, yes how did how do you want this one learn that <laughs> Well, actually, they were just very crack genius. And I mean, they were, my father was an engineer and an economist. And then my uncle has like three other degrees. And then my aunt was also a nerd. And so they have this company. <clears throat> and I remember actually when I was a kid and this, and you know, the comp, the, 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 I mean, I don't know, like how to say this, the, the place where they have the fab, the factory. Mm-hmm was in the south of the city in a very super, super marginalized area where all the factories are. And I remember sometimes I went there and it was these huge machines, like huge machines. And, and, you know, it was like this noise, you know, like literally, uh, welcome to the machine. Literally. Yeah. And I have the memory from a kid and then the office was this kind of really being inside the machine. And then the local industry collapse because it was impossible to compete with China and all that. So they now still do that, but they also 
just commercialize with parts of the machines or like other things. I wonder if you ever went back there, if it would feel totally different in scale, because you know how when you're younger, everything seems enormous, like five times the scale of what it is. Like sometimes, like when I occasionally go back to where I grew up, it feels so small compared to my memory of it. Yeah, it's true. Actually, I haven't been in the factory in like 80, 20 years or mm -hmm. more. And also my memory of going there, it was that it was so far from home and it was the traffic was so bad and it was so polluted around it that I always get a headache. So I that's why the reason I didn't want to go there. Yeah. <clears throat> but then I ended up years after I did a workshop in a jail that it was even further away from there. But actually when I was going to that jail, I remember going to my dad's factory because of the headache and because of the huge commute and because you have to basically cross the whole like ghetto to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, it's basically the biggest part of Bogota where is where the people live, like where all the working class live and it's really, really tough. Yeah. So I want to give some workshops to this uh, queer trans community in in this jail, and and I was it was very beautiful, but and they love me. But the thing is that the commute and the access to the jail was so many hours because of the security and all that that I had to just quit. I mean, I was doing it volunteer anyway. Right. But it became it became too heavy for me. And then I was crying for hours after seeing these people. Jeez. Yeah. It was intense work and I couldn't handle it for too long. It sounds like a very, um, you know, I don't want to say stressful, but like a heavy atmosphere as a, a kid, you know, like how does creativity come into play in all this? Was that something that entered your life later on or were you ever exposed to creative things or art or music and stuff when you were little well actually um when i was a teenager <clears throat> i was punished all the time a lot of like a lot because i was always doing what i should not be doing i started smoking weed very young like when i was 12. Jeez. and i think weed was <laughs> my door <laughs> It helped me a lot to connect with other things. Mm -hmm. um, and then because I was punished, because I escaped to parties and I was crazy, I started painting. So because I was constantly not able to go out, not able to do this, not able to do that, always escaping to everything that I wanted to do. And so I started painting and music. I was always like a music music lover. Oh, really? And, and so I was, my most sacred thing was my, my, I don't know, sound system that I have. Yeah. So I was always collecting tapes at the beginning, then collecting CDs. <clears throat> and I, I always like records because my parents always have a record player. So that was even earlier, but of course the record player was always in the living room. Um, actually, when I was like 14 and I got kicked out of one school, they sent me here to the United States to see my cousins in mm -hmm. Philadelphia because they 
they were just they could not handle my friends in the neighborhood so they were like no we need to send her far, the most far away from her friends so they sent me here to feel it to my cousins and they all were super stone heads so i was super happy and <laughs> um, they love music too and so you know i discover i mean they give me a lot of records and so, for example, everything that I was punished for there, I was kind of um, free here yeah. in this context of my family. So it was also like a contrast. What kind of music were you exposed to or did you like back home and then in Philly? Well, I mean, I a lot of actually American music, like rock and roll. You know, mm -hmm. like The Doors, Janis Joplin and all these things that actually yeah. my cousins were surprised that I liked that music because they're like, why? And I'm like, I don't know. I just like it. And <clears throat> and then, of course, so when I was a teenager, I listened like Nirvana. I was a huge Nirvana fan yeah. <laughs> as a kid. It was I mean, crazy. most of us were into it <laughs> at that time. I mean, it was pretty epic, you know. <laughs> so this kind of thing and like yeah like grunge and rock and roll and you know like velvet underground all these things no mm -hmm. and then of course well of course pink floyd i mean pink floyd was amazing sure uh, but then and so my cousins when i got here and they have all these records right because my parents have other kind of records you know they have more like salsa music or yeah music in Spanish or boleros, which boleros are very beautiful. And I also embrace them a lot because all the parties in the country house and all these adults getting drunk and they were just listening to boleros and to old salsa. And I yeah. love old salsa, you know. Oh, it's so good. So I have that on that side. But then when I came here and also on my own search, I found like this hippie music and all that. Um, of course, later I get into electronic music a lot because I was just raving basically a lot. Oh, wow. Um, Raves. I remember those. So yeah. was it like techno stuff? Like the early? Yeah, like techno, drum and bass. Drum and bass was huge in Bogota. I mean, it was a huge kind of thing. I mean, uh, it was like, I mean, it was huge let's talk in drum my and bass. world. I love drum and bass. So, And I feel like generationally, I don't like younger people may not even know what drum and bass is or care about it but to me it was huge who were you listening to well actually i i really cannot tell you like the musicians like the like DJs. whatever was on in rave basically yeah and because i have a lover that was a drum and bass dj in a moment and also well oh, not right. it was a lot and also like but yeah it was because in bogota actually the scene was very small at the beginning mm-hmm and it was really, really underground. And we were doing these raves in like crazy places. Like it was even very dark, which I mean, we didn't care. It was just like, we just wanted to dance forever. Right. Yeah. And they were bringing like these DJs. Uh, <clears throat> I was really young. I mean, I was like 16, probably 17. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then and then that's why I was escaping from my, you know, I was actually, I just wait until everybody was asleep and then I left and then I came back before 6 a.m. that everybody wake up. Um, 
but and then the scene start growing and they have a, a festival then in the 2000s called Bobo Tracks. Mm-hmm. Then I was already in, in college and I live in downtown, so I was just there all the time. <clears throat> and and yeah, drum and bass was huge. Then like hard techno, I'm not a big fan of hard techno personally, yeah, but I wasn't you know, as into there it. was a there was there was a big scene of hard techno. And then, you know, also local DJs, which was good. Yeah. Um I I like more like minimal <coughs> Techno or ha- like this kind of deep house, mm-hmm. and well, drum and bass. I grew up like yeah, drum and bass was the was the first thing. So yeah, um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time in the party in my life. Actually, <laughs> well, I guess I mean, was some of that maybe just? It feels like a lot of your the environment of growing up was pretty heavy stuff. So maybe the you know, smoking pot and going and dancing was like a, a nice escape from all that heaviness. Like It was you know, completely unescapable. The dancing, yeah. it's like dance away the worries, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it was completely unescaped. I've been in a healing journey for a while now mm-hmm. uh, because I was not only escaping, I was escaping everything. Yeah. And actually that thing of being escaping, um, actually art was, is kind of my way of escaping. Well, oh. when did that, when did you find that? Because it sounds like music maybe, maybe a little sooner. I mean, we all listen to music when we're really young and kind of love it and escape through songs, but making art sometimes it takes a little more proactive, you know, engagement in it, which sometimes you have to be a little more mature to really start to sink into, you know, art as an escape. But when did that enter into your mind or your experience? Well, Mira, actually, <clears throat> um, as I told you, when I was very young, I started painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then I grew up with this statement that you cannot be an artist, you're going to be broke. And right. I've That's been universal. kind of <laughs> on learning that for yeah. a while. Um, and then in my family for example i wanted to go to college to art and mm-hmm. my father was like there's no way i'm gonna support that so i ended up studying anthropology because Which is is that really a lot more employable than art <laughs> well not but i convinced them right that it was like worth it to do um but because but art funny? was completely it's- denied yeah, art. I guess art has a stigma that you can just not be successful or feed feed yourself through art. But I don't know how employable. Like, are there a lot of anthropologist rock stars out there just like killing it? You know, or is that also a grind? <laughs> no, it's all relative, right? You know. Yeah. It's like um, anthropologists rolling around in Bentleys <laughs> in the club. It's like, yeah, you picked the right the right occupation. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then actually I started studying physics and chemistry because I love it. Nice. Mm. And then my father has a hope on chemistry because he's like, man, chemistry, you know, people that success in that could make money, right? Yeah, that that more than anthropologist, I would think. And then I'm like, I love it. But then I was like, I don't want to be in a laboratory for my whole life. Right. But then I was like, well, maybe I could do my drugs anyway. I ended up resigning from that 
And I went to anthropology because I want to travel also. Like I was like, okay, I'm just going to learn from things. I want to travel. I want to escape. You know, I want to leave. I want to be away. So I study anthropology, but then in the school, of course, I was taking a lot of art classes. And, but I always do it as a hobby because in my mind was like, I'm not able to be an artist. I cannot be, I'm not good enough to be an artist. So I'm just going to do it because I want it. And I start dancing contemporary dance. And, and that, and that really opened, opened me to something else. Mm -hmm. And, but then as well, for example, I never consider myself a dancer because I was not as disciplined as a dancer and dancers are really, really disciplined. Right. And that's what I discovered too. And I was not, I mean, I was in the rave. I, I mean, I, I didn't have the discipline to be a dancer as my dancer colleagues. Right. Right. I was too busy going out at night, but then I was dancing. It was, I love it. And I was doing it for joy. So between anthropology and dance, I discovered that I wanted to be a performance artist. And so which is how did the you less... find out about that though? Because performance art is, it's pretty niche. You know what I mean? It's not like, um, you know, it's not like there's a big, usually there's not like a beginning performance art class or intermediate performance art. You know, it's, I mean, there's classes on it, I guess, but it's a little less, uh accessible sometimes or just obvious that that's a path to go like what turned you on to it and how did you were there certain artists you saw and you're like oh i want to you know that's something i'm really into or how did you get there yeah actually in my time when i did my bachelor's <clears throat> it was the early 2000s and really there was no classes on performance art right. yet, and even less in colombia um but yeah there was an artist that i really admire from Colombia, actually, whose name was Maria Teresa Incapié. Mm -hmm. And then she has a beautiful piece where she's 24 hours. She basically brought all the objects that were in her house and organizing them in a gallery for 24 hours in different ways. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. I mean, this is it. And... I just got completely passionate about performance art. And actually, I remember that the first kind of performance thing that I did was for an anthropology class mm -hmm. that we were talking on, a, on an artist that is also super feminist and revolutionary in Colombia. <clears throat> Her name was Deborah Arango. And she has a paint that was the mount, like it was called mountains, and it, but it was like a woman body, but it was the mountains. <clears throat> And, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to embody that in a performance. So what I did is that I paint all my body as a camouflage because I was on, like doing a, you know, the war. We live mm -hmm. in war since I was born. Right. <laughs> there yeah. was war there forever. It was everywhere. And also as a, an anthropologist, I was traveling to very heavy areas. I had to confront paramilitarians. I had to confront all sorts of shit. So... I just embodied the piece of the Orarango, but with this kind of war context. And, and also the war on the female body and the war on blah, blah, blah. 
And then I felt that for me, that was like, oh my God, I love this thing because it's not dance. So I don't have to go out and dance and show that I'm a super amazing dancer or whatever, but I'm using my body as a medium. Right. And that was basically what really kind of make a shift on me. And of course it was like performance art. I mean, it was not that I could in the family talks, like, what do you want to do for your life? No performance art. Of course, like nobody will understand that ever. Right in my in the family context because none of them are really artists or anything like that so i don't know maybe i was i mean that was something that you really when i felt that i could do a connection with the body and arts without being just an a dancer that was just something that really opened me to something that i really want to do and then and then because in these kind of subversive spaces I always find her home. And so every time I went to a performance art workshop, performance art residency, it was all the ones that were always rejected. The queer, the trans, the this, the that. And then I was like, this is home. This is where I belong to, you know. Yeah. And and I start finding a home there. I moved to, well, I moved here to the States first. But then I didn't connect with that scene at the beginning in New York. Then I ended up in Mexico City. And in Mexico City, it was a huge scene of performance art. Also super underground, super cool. In Mexico City, I found out it was a very cosmopolitan city as well. A lot of people from everywhere goes there. Yeah. But it's still Latin America. So I fall in love with Mexico City. And with Mexico City gave me what Colombia denied me. They gave me a full scholarship to study arts. <clears throat> they give me everything I need to really dive in into this performance art practice in the way that I want. Um, and I just did all my project on performance art and I studied with amazing people, not in college, but outside of college with the college resources. Right. I did artist residency with, you know, La Pocha Nostra, uh, the Black Market International, uh, I went to England to do a workshop with uh, <clears throat> Jürgen Fritz and Weston Page. It was just a completely, I just become just a performance artist. And then I studied at the National University of Mexico, which is a public university, but has a lot of resources then mm -hmm. and a lot of spaces. And because I was like, a, you know, master's degree, whatever in arts, I was able to just ask for whatever space I want to do whatever I want. And that was amazing, you know? Yeah. Did you feel like being in an environment which was supportive, a little less, I'm imagining, stressful and tense, that it opened up the work and your work changed or your attitude towards creating was different or maybe evolved out of a certain way of waking, working into a new way of of doing what you were doing yeah totally um i felt some sort of liberation also of opportunity to be myself fully without i mean I've, I've been always on this quest but i feel that sometimes or the environments where we were born or where we were raised uh we kind of acknowledge subconsciously some sort of behaves that we should do or not. And then when you actually, I felt as an, as an immigrant, because I've been living in many, many different countries in my life, that when you move out 
to somewhere else and you're there is no expectations about you anywhere because nobody knows you and you can right. just be whatever you can reinvent yourself as well because you can also question the own expectations that you have from yourself <laughs> yeah and just like you know what i'm just gonna maybe just try this differently whatever and because when your brain is doing other neural connections which actually my thesis on performance is about that like time perception neurology um blah 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 it's like philosophy of time and space but also in the science i put it on like like the neuronal space of experience of experience from the senses of experience of time and it's like when you go to a different place and you have to do all these new neuronal connections only to for example get out and get back to your house then your experience of reality changes right and there is a wider spectrum of possibilities open for you because you're not just acting automatically to something that is already like known, right? Yeah. It's a pretty and, amazing idea too to be able to just kind of start fresh. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Like I guess you do a lot of times when you know people go to school and they're in a new program or they're they move to go away to school and in a sense you you know, you start new, but a lot of times you're not hyper-conscious of it, you know what I mean? Or at least I was never really that conscious of it. But I would imagine that, like, given your situation, it's a real sort of carte blanche, you know, to, like, just start fresh and, and like, set up a whole new sort of mental approach to how you engage with people creatively, you know. Was it the, um, the performance stuff that you saw, obviously, you know, in Colombia, you were, you know, there were certain artists that you were looking at. Were you, did you start to get into the history of performance art or other people doing different things in different places? Was that all, did you go full on into that or were you kind of just doing what you wanted to do? No, yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I think the reason why I study anthropology and now I uh, really appreciate it like 20 years after <laughs> is because I love to research. I always been passionate about researching. I mean, I research about the most minimal thing sometimes, you know, <laughs> it's like, and then of course I was like, okay, what is this thing? And I started looking for, and the more I look for, I was like more amazed. Yeah. So yeah, I found, of course, yeah, Marina Abramovic, the, the she, has she, like all these people that was doing amazing thing in the seventies, in the eighties, you know? Yeah. And then I was like, how I just came up to this. This is the most amazing thing, you know? Yeah, for sure. And then, and then that's why, so I went to Mexico because an, uh, a theorician of performance art invited me to do a research. And then she was like, Mira, if you really want to do it as a practice, she connected me with this amazing activist artist in Mexico, Lorena Wolfer. So basically she was my first mentor. I took a workshop with her and it was very intimate. And then we became a lab of five girls, well, five women, five whatever, that we met in her house every Friday to do a private lab. And we were exploring the most deepest issues. It was basically like therapy. Yeah. Because we were doing performance, but on women's issues or like personal issues. It was a very amazing crew because it was, for example, 
Uh, one of our colleagues was have suffered like sexual abuse, and another of our colleagues was coming from a very like oppressive area, like economically. You know, we were a very different group of five women, very rich. And yeah. then Lorena opened her house for us to re to unite and start exploring our most deepest fears. So it was like a lot of like therapy through performance art. And then I was like, this is amazing because. I always have believed in the power of art into healing, you know, mm -hmm. which is what actually I'm doing now. And actually, before talking about this with you right now, I didn't thought about this connection, but maybe it's been there for a while. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes from somewhere, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that must have been so intense, though, to be in that small group. And you guys are just doing performances for each other and they're based on these... <clears throat> Really? Yeah, like, like actually, Lorena sometimes uh, put us like we work on some tasks, um, and actually her work is really she work a lot with women and she work a lot with she's a super super high feminist um, thinker and activist and a lot of her work is in the streets and so actually we we come basically her collective and so we did a lot of interventions together i mean her ideas but in the streets for example there was a performance that we did in the socalo which is the central square of mexico city mm -hmm. because you know she was famous so she had the funding you know yeah and we did this uh she was always working in the time that i was with her we were working like for a year and a half together about violence, gender violence, because, well, I mean, in Latin America, that's very common. And the reason why I went there to, like, life took me there is because, I mean, I love my dad and everything, but I suffer a lot of violence in my house. And that's why I was always wanted to escape. I mean, I was yeah. not only wanted to escape of the reality out there, I was always wanted to escape from home. Right. And, and so, yeah. I was always wanted to escape from home. And then she was working on these issues on violence. It's like, of course, I mean, I'm super related to that. And yeah. so we were doing, for example, she did these kind of uh, crystal jars that you use for homeopathy, mm -hmm. like remedies. And yeah. there was like remedies for certain violences. And then basically woman from the street came and we were doing kind of a ritual and they were <clears throat> sharing what they want to heal. And we start doing something in that part of the body with whatever they want to heal. So we have names of the plants or names of remedies or names of things. I mean, everything was like, you know, conceptual, but right. also physical in a way. And so these performances lasted like 15 hours or things like that. And we wow. were all there, like in this um tents in the middle of the Socalo and all these women coming with all these crazy stories all these crazy stories and we were all day there like assisting them on that on that and then because Lorena also thinks on the power of healing of the world and that sometimes only for you to be able to talk about something that you suffered that you're not able to to say is part of the healing process and also because her kind of her project goes also into the people have to start announcing the the things and she also collaborated with a lot of 
these places where these women can find refuge when they have to escape from their houses and all that. Right. Um, so yeah, we were doing a lot of performance on that. For example, there was a lot of rape and sexual abuse in the subway in Mexico. And we were, one day we were all dressing red with these like worker um, suits. <laughs> and then we were with like speakers and, and microphones, like doing a campaign and just denouncing all this violence all over on all the lines of the subway, like for 12 hours, you know? Wow. So this is like, it's, it's very heavy stuff that you're tapping into. And it, it seems like you found a way to, it's, it's almost like anthropology of your situation growing up in your cultural kind of like environment socio environment and then sort of digging into that as an artist and you know kind of talking about those experiences to sort of like you said it seemed like therapy i mean i guess that is such a great way to sort of like come to terms with a lot of the stuff a lot of the baggage that you know is there is kind of like letting it out and talking about it airing it and performing it out instead of just like making a photo of it or a picture it's more of like an experiential uh, expression of this, you know, experience that you had, you know, growing up. Yeah, totally. I think that's why I feel my connection with performance art was, I mean, I don't know, to talk about performance art is kind of cliche, but that I need the body. I need the right. body. I need to embody the experience of art. And that was basically what I was looking for. And now it's kind of, I'm going into a switch because, you know, I've been practicing performance art for more than 10 years and I was mm -hmm. completely devoted to that. And I was like, that's everything I'm going to do in my life. But very deep inside me, I was always wanted to be a filmmaker. But then I was, again, I'm not able to be a filmmaker. I don't have the resources to be a filmmaker. I'm never going to be enough good to be a filmmaker because, you know, all this stupid trauma we have. Right, right. Then I have this beautiful present from my partner that is this book that apparently had changed the life of a lot of people that is called The Artist Way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have heard about it. Yeah. And then I started, and I was kind of like, I'm not sure about this book. And then I started doing it and it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Like the exercises are so great. And when I was studying Kabbalah and the Tarot, it was the same. It's like how to really reconfigure your subconscious mind. Right. And because everything is there. And, and so then I was like, yeah, I mean, there should be ways of doing it differently. And when I got here and I got this scholarship, um, I was willing to do this project for a while, not in the form it took, the project that I did for my thesis, Howl's in the Mountains, that I feel is like the biggest project I ever done. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that because I was always in this, running away mode always since i'm since i remember when i got deported and they sent me to colombia despite the fact that i haven't been living there for more than eight years i was like what the hell am i doing here right so i fight it and i suffer it and i deny it i ended up escaping again to germany and i went in, in berlin like for a year i give birth to my son there blah 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 but then hey, I have wait, to you blah back. blah blah over a big thing. How do you escape the Germany? 
that seems well, like actually, it would be hard to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I was willing to study there, but then my father says that he, I mean, for Colombians, um, to move to Berlin specifically, if you don't have like 10,000 euros in a blocked bank account that the government managed for you, you cannot get a student visa. Right. And 10,000 euros could be not a lot, but I didn't have them. You know, I was working in Mexico as like a art, like assisting an artist, whatever. I was just living the best life, but I didn't have enough money to save any money. Yeah. Um, and then I came here and I realized that I wasn't really able to do 10,000 euros, you know. And so I was like, okay. Um, and then my dad told me like, I'm not going to give you that money. You have to figure out, but I can pay you the German course if you want and whatever you want it. So he paid me the German course in Berlin, but he didn't give me the money for getting my visa. Right. So I was like, okay. And so then I was like this super depressed. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to Germany and figure out. And I'm just going to start taking my German course, whatever. And I was pregnant, but I didn't tell my parents or anybody that I was pregnant. I just left. And when I was there, I have a huge community of friends in Germany, in Berlin, which I was actually living in a in a squat, in, a, in an occupation uh, for like seven months or so. What year are we talking? Like a squat, like a house no, that is no. occupied. What, what year was this? Ah, this was just in 2016, Oh, okay. So it's fairly recent. Yeah. And then um, my friends there, uh, they all work with uh, refugees. I mean, the, my friends there all have papers, you know, but they were working all with the refugees and all that. And they were like, Mina, there should be a way that you can stay here. We have to figure out the way. So I start like, we start researching, we start doing all this thing. And we ended up finding a figure on which I could stay because I was already asking to come back here because my husband is from here. My stepdaughter was here. So I was like, I cannot screw it up in another country. You know, I have to do things kind of smoothly. Yeah. So <clears throat> we found a figure that if you are in a risky pregnancy for more than in, beyond the month seven, they should allow you to stay to give birth in, in Germany. And, and they, and they were like, okay, just give birth here. Um, and then I gave birth there and everything was beautiful. I was a super fast, amazing, mind blowing, healthy birth. I mean, I, I give birth in four hours, which, and everybody Whoa. was like, how did you do that? That was, that's a cheat code. My wife was yeah, in there for no. like a day. She was in there for like a day. No, everybody I know is it takes a long time. That baby and then wanted I, to come out. Yeah, no, I, like, my son was out like this German environment. <laughs> and so he was born. Yeah, like basically, I I I have the water break at one thirty a.m. I was preparing a paperwork for the Ausland of Hood. Oh my god. And I was like super stressed, like, because, you know, then I realized that if I don't go with a German speaker, it was a nightmare. So I always need to find someone that speaks German to come with me. And then right. two of my friends 
ended up almost killing the people that work there and they were like oh, we yeah. cannot go with you anymore because we're gonna kill this woman <laughs> so um, i have to find other people we, we were on the every time i have to go there we have to find someone that joined me because German the people speaking. were so enraged at the way that they were treating you yeah they were yeah. super racist and, and then my friends are super anarchists so one i have a french black friend and they almost <clears throat> killed the woman. Like, oh my gosh. I just heard that they were yelling at each other in German, like so loud that everybody in the office was like, and I was like, and then my friend was like, do not ever bring me here again <laughs> because they, I'm going to kill them and they're not going to give you the thing. Right. And I'm like, oh, fuck. But you got so, through. So, yeah. I got through it and then I was preparing for that and I was like, you know what? I'm going to bed. My sister was there with me. I was not living anymore in the squad because I was like, I told my partner, I don't want to give birth in the squad. I mean, I love the squad, but it's kind of too much. And I just have nightmares in the bathroom of the squad giving birth. And I was like, I don't want yeah, that. Yeah. So we rent an apartment in Prenzlauerberg, a nice apartment that my sister arrived. And she arrived. I'm glad she was there because you know my partner wasn't there then. My my son's supposed to arrive in the around the 10 or the 11 of December, but he came in the late November. So he was like, you know, he came earlier. And basically, it was as soon as they give me the green light to have give birth, and then this my friends make a huge brunch with all this queer gang in another squad in solidarity for my birth. And so they give me money, clothes, everything. And at the next day, basically like two days after this happened. And, and yeah, so it was, it was, everything was just amazing. And, and this, they actually, everybody was like, oh, you know what, in German hospitals, I never give food, try to prepare that, to bring some sandwiches or something because you're going to be hungry. And then this hospital have like a vegan buffet. Whoa. And also homeopathy for the recovery. Of course, like real medicine if people want, but mostly homeopathy. So they yeah. offer first. Wow, that's nice. And then when my partner arrived, because, you know, my sister called him like, hey, you know what, Carol, you know, is in labor. And see, he was here in New York. And I was like, oh, fuck, I have to leave. But then he got there the next day. And then, you know, he was hoping hope that maybe my birth was not super fast. But it wasn't like that. So <laughs> he got there. And then the, this place was like an hour away from Berlin, really. It was in the middle of the forest. And when he got there, he was like, man, this hospital is like amazing. What the fuck? And he was like, we could never afford this in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm yeah, like, you found a good spot. <laughs> and I'm like, well, the German government's paying everything. Right, right. And because he was always criticizing me, like, why you have to go through all that? And why do you have to do all this? And I'm like, man, you have no idea because you're a privileged white guy that you have no idea of a lot of things. But I know deep in myself why am i doing all this and then you know then you see the yeah. why so know? when you were deported and then you had to escape to germany 
he uh-huh. wasn't he wasn't with you i mean he was living here i mean he right. was living here mostly because my stepdaughter lives here and he has half of the custody oh but you weren't able to just because you weren't married yet weren't you married no no okay. i was okay. idiot because actually trump got president well and that'll make anyone me, like, not be married to anything <laughs> <laughs> no, and then he was like, why don't we get married now? And I'm like, I was like, Mira, that was in the winter because, you know, this president's election happened like in November, right. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, November. And then I was like, Mira, let's do it in the spring. So I invite my parents. But before that, because I didn't want to have overstay with my visa, I went to Belize to actually like... Uh, uh, ethnobotanical center where you do mushrooms and jopo and peyote and everything for healing and so i went to belize for a month and then when i came back is where they deported me they didn't let me in and uh-huh. they subject me to all sorts of interrogatories they hack all my information it was really like off tough so but i didn't have any problems with my visa you know i mean they just did that because they, they just didn't want to let me in Right, right. And because when they called my partner, he told them she's going to marry me. And then the guy told me, like, ah, oh, you're another Latina. I don't want to marry just to stay with you. I'm not going to let you in. It's weird. Yeah, no, they are really, really mad fuckers. And this was in Texas. And no. because my the planes from Belize only stop actually i was coming with a lot of canadians and people from europe and people from the united states and all the planes that come from belize city they stop in houston texas houston Mm -hmm. and then my lawyers from new york they told me that that is the most racist airport and that i should never ever go to that airport again anymore yeah (laughs) fly to san francisco Um, (laughs) Yeah, so she was like, my lawyer was like, no, that airport sucks. And she's like, is the most of the parties happen there? Of deportations in airports. Because, you know, I mean, I didn't have any problem with my visa. It was just that they didn't let me in. Anyway. Well, you became, so you you worked that out in Germany and then you came back after that. And then I came back to Colombia. Mm -hmm. And then I realized like having a child then maybe i have to do something there um deeper that like like something beyond my reason beyond my ego right. like okay there is something i have to do here what yeah. is it and then i was like maybe i should reconnect with the land of my ancestors you know mm-hmm. like where my parents come from my grandparents come from and i started doing all this research and then I wanted to do a film, but on my family lineage, because I have a lot of family that have been political prisoners and they're been into the leftish. And it's a very interesting story, including my grandma, my dad, my uncle, my other uncle. <clears throat> so I was very interested in that story, but also on my mom's side, there is kind of a lost line. And I feel my grandmother and my great grandmother were indigenous. So I wanted to trace that back. Um, but I didn't have the funding to do it. So in Colombia, I just ended up just being a mother, full-time, almost single mother 
because I mean, well, my parents send me my partner send me money, but he was not here there all the time. Right, right. It was just you, basically. It was me, the kid, uh, which was very tough. Uh, but then also, I have the help of my family that at the beginning I didn't appreciate, and now I value it like right, enormously. Right. Now that yeah. they are not here, um, and then I. I make a collective of performance because I was like, I need to keep doing something or else I'm just going to be just depressed. Yeah. And so I, I earn a, I earn a grant to go to Europe to, um, to artist residencies. And in that time, Eric took Cosmo or child to New York for that summer. And I went to Europe and after that, I have to socialize what I, uh, kind of did in Europe, in Colombia, because they gave me the grant for that, right. the government. And then I did this workshop, super intensive workshop on performance art with my techniques that I love. And in Colombia, not a lot of people is doing that. So the people that took the workshop was completely mind blowing. And I ended up making a collective with some of these people. And we were just doing performance a lot and crazy stuff in the street and everywhere and i was just applying to a lot of festivals whatever then the pandemic hit so online festivals and we were just yeah. gathering secretly in spaces and doing shit and do you just film it all or do you photograph it how do you i have some footage of that yeah i mean i've seen some of the videos online like you have some on your site and there's links to it but i didn't know if you just like what percentage of your performances you actually record or if there's a lot of them that you just do that you know, aren't necessarily documented through video? Well, I mean, um, maybe there are things that are not documented or well documented. <laughs> yeah. But um, later on, I start thinking on, like, we have to document because this is how we sell. I mean, how we show that we can do things to do more things. Right. So... Yeah, actually, I haven't honestly worked on my website like in two years because I've been so busy, but I have to kind of start working on it again. Right. Um, but yeah, so that was basically actually what is there is more like my my performance work. And since I got here with this grant, I started doing more video and film and I started working super late a lot. I have a project I started in 2016 in, a, in an artist residency in Buffalo that was never finished for lack of resources, but then um, my friend who invited me there is here. She's doing something else. She's not living in Buffalo anymore, but we've been talking about how to try to finish or do something else now with that. Mm -hmm. But now I start doing this. Uh, so I got basically, I, I applied to a PhD in Vienna that I didn't get with this family project that I told you that I wanted to do in the region mm -hmm. of my family in the South of Colombia. And then when I got here, I was like, I'm just going to do this project here. This is the perfect, I mean, this is the land that is where the sea is going to grow, you know. But then when they give me structure, when I realized that I'm going to sell it better if I work with another community that is not my family. And so I found this union of guerrilla women. And I'm like, this is perfect. This is everything I want to work with, you know. And first, because they are women and I have all this empathy Second, because they were guerrilla and I have all this empathy. And so they were just the perfect combo of people that I wanted to work with. And they were in Neva, the city where my parents were born, and is the territory, you know. Mm -hmm. 
so I found them and I in the first semester I just with the guidance of my professor I restructured the whole project and then during the that winter break I just submitted to grants because I knew that the money that they gave me here wasn't enough right and I got two grants uh, one of six thousand and another one of five thousand and I was able to make it happen and then the thing, the most amazing thing of the project is that I thought of the project of like, okay, I want to do something with the stories of them. But because I have also heard from communities, from people, from them, that people from the academy and everything is coming to them to just basically extract information without leaving anything to the communities. And that is happening a lot with this project of the rain, like, after the signature of the peace agreement of the FARC and all this kind of commission of truth, that there is a lot of people traveling to the territories, collecting the stories from the people. I mean, yeah, of course, we do it for the sake of the truth, but also because, but these communities need something back. Right. Because when we come from academy, we have a privilege, you know, we have to acknowledge that privilege when we work with these people. So the first thing I did was like, Mira, I want to do an art project, whatever. But if if I'm going to work with you guys, what do you think I could do from the academy to like gather funding for you? What do you need? But let's think bigger. I mean, let's think not like something that maybe you can get through an NGO or maybe you can get through the government. Let's think something else that you feel that you need, but that is difficult to ask for because there is no resources for that. And so they were like, you know what? we were thinking a lot about, we need a lot of healing. And because most of us have indigenous descent, like we are kind of indigenous peasants, very rural people from the South of Colombia, very particular area. I think we would like healing approach through like traditional indigenous medicine or more holistic medicine, like nothing, not necessarily psychosocial assistance. That is what we've been having, but we have found it insufficient in our process. Mm And we definitely need a lot of feeling. I mean, we have like huge traumas. And then I was like, well, that is amazing. I love the subject. It's completely connected with myself. I love it. So basically I designed this project to be a reparation project in which um, through resources from the global north, I could channel uh, money to give this community the opportunity to experience this a healing journey for nine months. Mm, and so I could go into the terrain and do my research and do an art project out of it, whatever. Yeah, it's amazing. So that was exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, are, are some of these projects or performances or in like the collectors, I imagine it's still running up through now, correct? Which the things that I did before? Well, yeah, like the you know that that earlier work and like the let's say you do something specific to a certain group of people in a certain place or something, or like the collective that you started. Like those threads are still like what you're working on today, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, the collective um, is not is not. I mean, I haven't worked with them in a while, and because I move here. Right. And everybody took their own path. But for example, two of the girls that for me are the collective now, 
because mm-hmm. I know that I can count on them. And actually, now I'm looking forward on how we can maybe do things outside of Colombia as well. Right. And because we keep continue together, and actually the last two works that we did for another international programs, um, we did it just the three of us, you know, these two women and me. And actually, they the two of them work with me in this project with this woman. You know, not as the yeah. collective of performance, but right, right. you know, they are both super good videographers, both both super good photographers. And so in the first retreat, one of them, I hired one of them to do it. And then in the post-production, I hired the other of them. She helped me with some edition and she helped me with all the subtitle thing. So for me, this is the collective, you know, it's like I try to also include my people in in the projects you know yeah and this was a big project for me the idea is that daniela was more present but also she's traveling the world blah 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 so it's more about like their availability as well Mm -hmm. you know because they are also have their own lives and their own projects and this project was always like last minute oh no they give me the money last week i have to do it next week you know it's like everything was just crazy and because with this woman, for example, I have the challenge that we have attempts of murder of some of them during the process, um, a lot of persecution. We have to change site for the second retreat the same day because of a persecution issue. Um, it was really crazy, but I'm used to that somehow because I just forgot about it doing performance art because I was in my own kind of bubble. Right. But when I study anthropology, I work a lot with people. And actually in my thesis of anthropology, I what I did is that I went to the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in the Colombian Caribbean to a village. And I was working in the National Reserve um, with the peasants, talking to them about not doing like illegal mining and the problems that have in the water that everybody drinks and poisoning and all that. And then I was working with the children of the paramilitary and teaching arts and environment. But at the end, these uh, rural schools were so in bad shape that I was teaching everything, literature, writing, uh, math, whatever. Yeah, And so I worked there for a year and then it was crazy because a lot of moms start coming to me. Um, they suffer a lot of violence, the moms and the children. It was a very tough environment. Most of the parents traffic with coke. Um, and so I, I ended up becoming like the psychologist of the moms. And then it was kind of super heavy. I left after a year that I moved to, I went to Cuba for a while and then to New York. But the two professors that I worked there with, they were murdered by the paramilitarians. So that was very sad because it's like when you try to do something and, you know, I'm always running away, as you can yeah. tell. Yeah. And yeah, I would, I, it made me like earlier, I was thinking like I wanted to ask you because you, you've been so transient, you know, you've moved so many places. You, I'm sure you're used to maybe not feeling like having roots deep down somewhere, but do you idealize, like, do you have like an idyllic place that you'd want to live that where you could just settle and be there and like dig in or you kind of feel that you always have this because your work is really feels to me that it's engaged in your past and your life in these different places. And it's, you've been able to shape 
being creative and making work that's really about navigating, you know, where you come from and then where you are at the moment and then other people with the anthropological aspect of that. So like what, like if you, do you think down the line and think like, oh, I want to be here or I want to live in this place or this is feels comfortable or, or do you just always feel like you're, you know, oh, I'm going to move in a few years or I'll do this or do that and not sink in, you know? Well, actually, um, my child has become my root. And yeah. I mean, I'm not going to put that burden on him, of course, because he's a Sagittarius and he also likes to travel. But for now, for the same time, for the first time, actually, I mean, I want to buy a land. You know, I want to buy yeah. a land in a place that there has water and trees and forests. But I also, for example, now I'm thinking, okay, um, I've been, I mean, I, the thing is that I, I'm kind of very ambitious sometimes. And I don't know if that's good or bad. But anyway, like now, for example, I'm, I'm like, you know what? I want a brownstone. I want to have a fucking brownstone. They're amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's... Uh, are you in New York or just in general? <laughs> no, in, in Brooklyn. In New York, yeah. But then they're extremely expensive. <laughs> yeah. I know that's a, a pipe dream for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I'd just like to have a whole brownstone. It'd be nice. <laughs> and that'd be nice. Then you go on Zillow and you're like, oh my God, this is expensive. <laughs> so I want to do a PhD in Vienna. Um, that sounds nice. My PhD of my dreams that is art in context, super political, but also art, creative, product, blah. And that's my dream PhD, and I want to do it. I would love, I mean, if, if someone asks me what I want to do in my life, I mean, I would love to teach, to yeah. be a professor, college professor. Uh, but I know I need a PhD probably to do that. So... Um, but then also it's like i'm not i have to i know that i embrace the fact that i have to stop running away because running away also has been my comfort zone probably right, it okay. become my comfort zone because i just it was my survival instinct and then it's like i don't have to run away anymore i just have to face my reality and, and so for now i guess i'm gonna be in new york um for some time I mean, unless something extraordinary happened, but, um, you know, and kind of find the best of it. Um, so to build something further. Right. Um, and then, and to get my papers, you know, I mean, yeah. I've been married for more than six years, so I mean, I should not be too far away from that anyway. <laughs> I would hope so. Because, yeah. Um, all right, here is, this is my last question. Um, your recent movie or film or TV movie or something that you've watched that you've really loved, a recent record, song, music, something that you really loved, and then a recent restaurant, food, dish, or something that you've really loved. Oof, recent movie. Where? Mm. Or it could uh, be a TV show or something, you know, doesn't have to be like movie, movie. I haven't been able to see TV shows since I started this master. I have been so busy. But I watch a lot of films actually in this program for my film classes. Ah, but you know what? Oh my God. I went to the film co-op in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. 
and I went to a program about dreamscapes. And I man, I cannot tell you the name. I will have to look for the program of the of the thing. But I saw a film that actually was filmed in New York in the seventies, probably in Super Eight. Mm-hmm. And it was just this beautiful kind of movement. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Jonas Mikas and mm-hmm. these people and Majader and I love Majader. And actually, I saw a film by Majader in, in that program that I haven't seen ever. I mean, I've seen a lot of movies from her many times, but this one particularly, I haven't seen it. And it's basically like the negative. So it's like she make like you see the stars and it's all these dancers like kind of negative like white they look mm-hmm. like just a white shadow like dancing and it's so beautiful I don't remember the name of that film but this whole program this whole curation uh, let me see if I found it. <clears throat> it was amazing and because I love to go to the cinema I mean it's kind of my date with myself every time I can go to the cinema. I do it and I usually go either to special programs or one of the things that I love the most about New York or Berlin or Mexico City is that you have these super underground film curatorial things that you can go that are just like delicious to see. Yeah. So that was my last film like experience that I really enjoy. That works. What about music? Music, I've been lately into a song that is kind of cheesy. I mean, I have a lot of favorite songs, but it's by La Femme and it's called Contaminado. All right, I'm writing it down. (laughs) And I don't know why I just put it again and again and again in the car. But actually, I found a station in... uh, in Spotify recently that is called La Viola or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like African music. And it was really good. Actually, I was driving uh, this week listening to that. And it was really, really good. Very good. um, Like contemporary stuff? I think so. I think it's both. I mean, maybe contemporary and and kind of vintage. Mm -hmm. But it's very roots. And I like this kind of root sound. Yeah. Yeah. That no, right. not necessarily needs to be old, but it has this vibe, you know? Right. Yeah, a connection with that, the history of the music there. And then book, um, the same, I haven't been, I love literature, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't been able to read a lot of literature lately. But actually, I've been reading two books that I highly recommend. Uh, one is... That my thesis is completely connected with that book. It was kind of a awakening from Gloria Alsandua that is called Light in the Dark. Mm-hmm. It's her last book. Uh, actually, she didn't publish it. This was post-mortem. It's supposed to be her thesis of her PhD, but she died before that. And so someone made a curation of her writings and it's this light in the dark. And then... I was reading also, I'm reading this beautiful book from Silvia Federici that I have here, that I think is the last one, Beyond the Periphery of the Skin. Mm -hmm. And it's about rethinking, remaking, and reclaiming the body in contemporary capitalism. (laughs) I talk to my son about this all the time. And then my partner scolded me because he's like, 
This is why you talk to him about capitalism all the time. No, he's five, he's right? Yeah. <laughs> Starting <laughs> to be on. He needs to know. Yeah. And then the last chapter is called on joyful militancy. Oh, nice. And then I'm like, and then it's basically that. It's like, I mean, I'm just going to read you the first sentence that is really nice. The principle of joyful militancy is that either our politics are liberating, either they change our life in a way that is positive, that make us grow, give us joy, or there is something wrong with them. And so I'm basically like in that kind of channel, um, because sometimes working with human rights and all this is really depressive yeah. and also affect the mental health a lot. Definitely. I mean, I'm glad that I have a beautiful therapist, but not everybody has a privilege. Right. Um, but then it's also like, I, I just try to find beauty or make beauty out of things, however. And so, yeah, I think Howells in the Mountains, this last film project is, is about that too. Nice. And then the last one is food. What's the last oh, dish food. or kind of food that has rocked your world? <laughs> like what's your favorite kind of food? Well, like if you have I, the last meal sort of thing. Well, last meal is different, I guess, than favorite. Well, the last time actually for Mother's Day, <laughs> We went to this delicious restaurant that I like uh, in <clears throat> Bushwick, uh, very old school. It's been there for 13 years, the Ethiopian restaurant. Ethiopian so food is really good. Yeah, so we went there for Mother's Day with my parents and it was really nice. All right, and here, okay, so the last thing is how do people sort of find your work or tap into what you're doing? I mean, is it just through the best way through the website? Well, I know you mentioned website. you need to update it, but you know, if people want to learn more about you, what do they do? Well, yeah, I feel I have to update my website. Actually, now in the website of my program, there is more information about this last project mm -hmm. because they have been publishing some stuff about it. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I have to work on my website <laughs> because I feel it's the fastest and more accessible way to do it. Yeah. Um, I know that if you put my name in Google, there is some a lot of crazy random things. For example, a Flickr that I published a long time ago show up, which is like, oh my God, I didn't know I had this. <laughs> and I don't even have the password anymore. I mean, I have no idea how to access that. And also, I will the Vimeo. I have oh, two right. Vimeos. Okay. I have the Vimeo that is my name. That is the most experimental first things that I did. And I have the Vimeo that is with my partner because he's a musician and he's mm -hmm. the one that do all the soundtracks for my stuff. So we call Sonambulist Films. I mean, I think we probably need to change that. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. We have to talk about it. But that's where all the collaborations we have done are. The thing is that there are things that are not public yet. And for example, in my school, they suggest me with this film to just don't public yet, to mm -hmm. just submit it to things right. before, um, which actually I was invited to by the Experimental Humanities Center here in Bard to their international conference with the Open Society to show the film in Colombia because they have the international conference in Colombia this year. 
mm-hmm. and they saw it and they were like man we have to take you there to talk about this it's beautiful that's cool so i'm gonna be in colombia in july showing the project which is really amazing nice can't keep you out of the can't keep you from traveling <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love it. I have to yeah, say, yeah. it's just that I like now to have a house. Right. Before I was just like, I don't care. But now I feel like I love to travel, but I also love to have my home to come yes. back to. Yeah, it gives you that feeling of like a home base. You know, it's comforting. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, it was ni- very nice to meet you, and thanks so much for telling your story. It was a really great talk. Thank you so much. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by going to soundandvisionpodcast.com. That's where you can also get the official book of the Sound and Vision Podcast, Why I Make Art. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Many thanks to... Golden Artist Colors for their sponsorship, the New York Studio School, and to Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Many thanks to Carol for, for sharing her story. We've got some more great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned.